You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, it's December, and ordinarily that means it's time to frantically prepare for Christmas. But in addition to Christmas time, this December also signals the end of a very bad year. And so today I want to give you a message that I hope will give us some biblical perspective about the year that we've had, and which will also give us some encouragement and joy with which to face the future. So today we're actually not going to talk about Christ's first coming. We'll talk about that uh, much over the next few weeks. But today we're going to talk about Christ's second coming in the future, in power and glory, as today we conclude our series in the book of Daniel. Today we're going to be in Daniel chapters 11 and 12, and we're going to see the final vision that God gave to Daniel. And this is a very detailed and complex prophecy in which Daniel was shown what would happen to his people Israel and to this world from Daniel's own time the whole way down to the end of history. Today we're going to learn things uh, that may not be totally encouraging. Today we're going to see that things are going to get a lot worse in this world. And I think that's kind of a reality check we need after the bad year we've had. It's going to get worse, friends. But today's passage is also going to teach us that things will get infinitely better for believers. And that's an encouragement that I know we need today. So what we're going to see today broadly is the Lord reigns over history, the Lord reigns over our future, and we're going to see that across three points today. First, God has ordained the flow of history. Second, God has ordained the end of history. And third, God has sealed aspects of the future from our current understanding. Let's start with the first point, which is that God has ordained the flow of history. Chapter 10, we learned that Daniel has been praying about his people, and God sent an angel to deliver a message to Daniel, but you might remember this angel was delayed for three weeks by a demonic attack. But now the angel has appeared and he speaks. Chapter 11, verse 2, he says, And now I will show you the truth. Chapter 10, this angel told Daniel that he had come to reveal the contents of the book of truth a book in which God has apparently recorded everything that will ever happen in history. And now this angel reveals what this book says about the future, and he begins with the future of Persia, because Daniel is living, according to chapter 10, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So the angel starts right where Daniel is in history, and he says, here's what's going to happen next, Daniel, verse 2. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And this prophecy came true. Cyrus was succeeded by Cambyses. Cambyses was succeeded by Bardia. Bardia was succeeded by Darius. And Darius was succeeded by Xerxes, the fourth from Cyrus. Xerxes is the king in the book of Esther who ruled over basically the whole known world, who was fabulously wealthy, and who in 480 B.C. launched an invasion of Greece, igniting a 150-year-long period of hostility with the Greeks. The prophecy now jumps to the end of this 150-year period. Verse 3, 
Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is Alexander the Great, whose rise was prophesied in chapter 8, who established the Greek Empire and who vanquished Persia. And yet, verse 4, as soon as he is arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. After just 13 years of rule, Alexander died. And he was succeeded not by members of his family, but rather 12 of his generals split up his kingdom. And they fought with one another, and in the end, four of these generals established four enduring kingdoms. And we talked about all this back in chapter 8. Now, the next 30 verses of this chapter focus on two of the kingdoms that emerged from Alexander's empire. And you can see a map with the, the locations of these kingdoms on the back of the bulletin. We're introduced to these kingdoms in verse 5. Then the king of the south shall be strong. The king of the south is Ptolemy. Ptolemy was one of Alexander's generals who wound up ruling over Egypt. Verse 5, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. This prince is a man named Seleucus, who was another one of Alexander's generals. And initially he ruled over Babylon, but he lost Babylon. And so Seleucus went and became a general in Ptolemy's army. And with Ptolemy's help, Seleucus retook Babylon and became a king again. And over time, Seleucus' kingdom became greater than Ptolemy's kingdom, just like this prophecy says. Seleucus and his dynasty become a really big deal, and throughout the rest of this passage, they are described as the kings of the north. Now, the next 15 verses or so speak in detail about what would happen to these two kingdoms, the kingdom of Seleucus to the north and Ptolemy to the south. And what happened was they found themselves in a centuries-long war. For the sake of time, I'm just going to summarize these verses. Verse 6 jumps ahead about 50 years to a political marriage which ends in disaster. King of the north, Antiochus II, married Bernice, the daughter of the king of the south. The problem was Antiochus already had a wife named Laodice, and as you might imagine, she didn't appreciate being set aside. And so she first broke up her old husband's new marriage. She then murdered Antiochus, Bernice, and their son, and she took the kingdom for herself. This inflamed the Ptolemies to the south, who wanted revenge since their daughter had just been murdered. And so, as predicted in verses 7 and 8, Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, invaded the Seleucid Empire, plundered the capital, and killed Laodice. So Laodice's son then swore revenge. Verse 9 predicts that he would invade Egypt and fail. But verse 10 predicts that his sons would continue the fight, and they did. His eldest, Seleucus III, reigned briefly, and he was succeeded in turn by his brother Antiochus III, who was one of the great generals of history. Antiochus built a massive army and invaded Egypt again, predicted in verses 11 and 12. And Antiochus and the Egyptians had a massive battle at a place called Raphia in 217 BC with 130,000 people fighting hand to hand. And the Egyptians won this battle. But as the prophecy says, they failed to capitalize on their victory. Antiochus lived to fight again another day, and he built another army. He expanded his kingdom to the east. And after the king of the south died in mysterious circumstances, he invaded Egypt again. 
Now, verse 14 predicts that at this point, Egypt, reeling from the death of her king, would suffer a number of rebellions, and they did, including a rebellion in Israel. During this period, Egypt ruled Israel. But the Jewish high priestly family got caught up playing politics, and they split. They, half the family wanted to follow uh, the Seleucids, and half wanted to follow the Ptolemies. And this division wound up splitting the people of God. And some of the Jews rebelled against their Egyptian lords at this time, and they were defeated. But while Egypt was strong enough to put down these rebellions, they could not defeat Antiochus. Verses 15 and 16 predict that Antiochus will defeat the Egyptian army, which happened at Sidon in 201 BC. And as a result, the Seleucids took Israel and kept it. Having gained the upper hand, verse 17 predicts that Antiochus would seek to consolidate his advantage by marrying his daughter to the king of the south, believing that she would compel her husband to serve her father. But this strategy failed. Antiochus' daughter proved more loyal to her husband than her dad, and she talked her husband into making an alliance with Rome, which proved totally disastrous for Antiochus, because verse 18 prophesies he would be defeated by the Romans in a war on the coast of Turkey. And as part of his defeat, Rome demanded that Antiochus pay them a large sum of money which he could not afford. And so Antiochus plundered his own cities and temples, and in one of these misadventures, Antiochus was killed in 187 BC, leaving his son, Seleucus II, to foot the bill, which is referenced in verse 20, who tried to loot the Jerusalem temple but failed and was promptly assassinated. Wow. That's 300 years of really complicated history in just a few verses. Now, I heard from some of you this week, you said, man, I tried to read this passage and I was totally confused by it. I don't blame you one bit. This is really confusing. And we might wonder, who are these people and why should I care? What do they matter? These are all political leaders from like 2,200 years ago and back. And what they're doing is what every leader has tried to do throughout history. They're doing what the 1985 Tears for Fears song says. Everybody wants to rule the world. And these guys tried to rule the world, and they did not succeed. And the verses that prophesy about them show us here their failures. And these failures teach us an important lesson, which is that worldly politics is not nearly as significant as we are prone to think. And we just lived through an election. And we were told this is the most important election in American history, which I remember also being told in 2016 and 2012 and 2008 and so forth. And I know many of us got caught up in this emotion, uh, in this election very emotionally. And I know some of us are still thinking and grumbling about this or celebrating it. But this passage gives us a perspective that every believer must remember, a perspective found in Psalm 146. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. The Bible teaches us three vital truths about human politics, which we see in our text. First, there's no point in putting our hope in human leaders because leaders come and go. In this chapter, we see lots of leaders, don't we? Significant ones like Alexander. We've all heard of Alexander. How many of us ever heard of Ptolemy III? Right? And what's interesting is all of these leaders are treated in a really brief way in this passage. None of them gets too much attention because from God's perspective, they're really not that significant. In fact, most of these leaders are forgotten by people in our own day and age. And I would tell you that's not just true of ancient leaders. That's true of American leaders. How many of you know much about the presidency of Franklin Pierce? 
or Millard Fillmore. If, if the Lord tarries and this con country continues, I would guarantee in about 100 years people won't know much about Trump or Obama or any of the people who we are fascinated by today. See, friends, power is fleeting. People seek it and they get it, but they can't hold it. And in time, they are forgotten. Leaders come and leaders go. I'm not saying leaders don't matter. They, they can. Some leaders are more wicked than others. Some leaders can make our lives more difficult than others. But if you don't like the leader you have, you usually don't have to wait too long and another one will take his place because power is fleeting. Second, we need to know that having power doesn't equal getting stuff done. We see that in our own time, don't we? Politicians make promises. Very few accomplish half of what they set out to do. People in power have a way of seeing their plans perish, Psalm 146 says. And we see that in our text. All these guys scheming, political marriages, invasions, over and over, they fail. Not only do politicians not have power for long, they usually don't use it effectively. And so the Bible says, don't hope in politics, you will be disappointed. Instead, Psalm 146 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The Lord will reign forever. You want to know who's going to rule without a term limit? You want to know who's going to complete his total agenda? You know who's going to keep every promise he ever made? The Lord will. Friends, God reigns, and he's never going to have to run for re-election. And God is in control of our present and our future, and we see that here. God gave Daniel this vision in 536 B.C., and in it he declared in detail what would happen over the next 372 years. That's not lucky guesses. God knew it beforehand because God ordained it. God was in control then, and God is in control today. God is in control over this horrible year. God is in control over this pandemic. God is in control over the election that just happened. In fact, Romans 13 says God decided how it was going to determine how it was going to be decided. And so instead of grumbling or despairing, the Bible tells us we need to believe that God is in control if we claim the name of Christ. And we need to trust Him. Because Romans 8.28 says, For those who love God... All things work together for good. God will use these circumstances in his people's lives to better conform them to the image of Christ. But now we learn the third truth we need to know about human politics, which is that history is headed in a downward trajectory. Sometimes God allows leaders to emerge who are satanic and who wage war against his people, and we see that in the culmination of the war between the kings of the north and the south. Look at verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. When Seleucus II died, his son did not become the king of the north because his brother Antiochus IV seized the throne. And we have met Antiochus IV before. He is one of the two evil figures whose appearing is prophesied in this book under the ominous title, The Little Horn. The other such figure is the Antichrist at the end of history. So that gives us some insight into what Antiochus IV is like. He stole the throne through political scheming. He secured it by murdering his nephews. And verses 21 to 24 summarize Antiochus' reign as being marked by cunning, deception, and victory. He would vanquish his enemies. It even says he will vanquish the prince of the covenant. Probably a reference to the Jewish high priest, whom Antiochus deposed and put his own puppet in his place. Verse 24 says, He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. 
Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down, slain. As his ancestors had done, Antiochus declared war on Egypt. And he won, because the Egyptians were incompetent and treacherous. And Antiochus then imprisoned the Egyptian king, Ptolemy VI. But Egypt revolted, and Antiochus decided Ptolemy had some use to him as a puppet king, so he met with Ptolemy. Verse 27 describes this. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed. And he, Antiochus, shall return to his land with great wealth. Antiochus and Ptolemy made plans to work together, but they wound up betraying each other. Antiochus plundered Egypt, and uh, Ptolemy rebelled against Antiochus. So they both stabbed each other in the back, but Antiochus got the better part of the deal, and he left with a bunch of money. But as he left, he went by Jerusalem. And at this time, the Jews had revolted against Antiochus. And he turned and crushed this revolt and murdered 80,000 Jews. Verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. A few years later, Antiochus invaded Egypt again, but this time the Egyptians had an alliance with Rome. That's what Kittim refers to, a place west in the Mediterranean Sea. And the Romans came to help Egypt, and Antiochus retreated. Now at this point, a rumor started in Israel that Antiochus had been killed. It was false. But the Jews rose up again in revolt. And Antiochus was infuriated by by this, and he fell upon Jerusalem with murder in his heart. Verse 30, he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Antiochus horrifically attacked the Jews. He outlawed the Jewish religion and sacrifices. He killed anybody who practiced circumcision or the Sabbath or who owned a Torah scroll. And Antiochus desecrated the Jewish temple by performing this shocking act of blasphemy, the abomination of desolation, in which he set an image of Zeus over the altar in the temple, and he killed a pig on the altar in offering to Zeus. Antiochus declared wholesale war against God and his people. He required the Jews to worship the Greek gods, and some of them did, and he rewarded them financially when they did. But other Jews remained faithful. Verse 32, But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action, and the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Faithful Jews resisted Antiochus and rebelled, but they suffered much. Many were imprisoned, many were martyred, many were betrayed. But God refined and purified the Jews through this era of suffering, preparing them for the future. For this Jewish rebellion would succeed. It would defeat Antiochus, and as a result, they would begin to set the stage for the appearing of the Messiah. Say, well, wow, that's a lot more history. What do we see here? The last truth we need to know about political power, which is that it is on a downward trajectory. Human rulers, by and large, rebel against the rule of God. Remember Psalm 2? 
The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's what human rulers want. They want to be rid of God so they can be in charge. And because of this constant pull of evil, history is heading in a downward trajectory. Yes, sometimes things may seem to get better, but generally evil flourishes more and more as time goes by. And this becomes most visible when God allows satanic leaders like Antiochus to come to the fore. The Bible says in 1 John 2, You have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. There will be a final Antichrist in the end, but before he comes there will be many Antichrists, many evil and uh, political and religious leaders who will defy God and who, like Antiochus, will want to deceive believers into following them and drawing our affections away from Christ. Beware, friends, don't fix your hope on political leaders. Their power is fleeting. They don't usually operate very effectively, and usually they are opposed to Christ. Instead, our allegiance and our trust must be in Jesus alone. So God has ordained the flow of human history, and it is on a downward trajectory. All right, now we come to our second big point this morning, which is that God has ordained the end of history. And here's where the downward trajectory of history leads. Look at verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. Now we come to one of the big interpretive questions of this book. Who is this king? If you just read the passage straight through, it sounds like this king ought to still be Antiochus, who we just read about, because there's no clear statement saying otherwise in the passage. However, the predominant Christian interpretation for at least the past 1,600 years is that this king is not Antiochus. Instead, at this point, the thought is the prophecy looks forward to the final Antichrist. And there are two reasons that I would say that the majority of Christian interpreters believe that verse 36 introduces the Antichrist here. First, everything in chapter 11 through verse 35 was fulfilled in incredible detail. But the final verses of this chapter don't correspond at all to what we know about the final days of Antiochus. And second, we are told in chapter 12, verse 1, that at that time, the time of this king in verse 36, a series of final events will happen in history, including the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment. And that certainly didn't happen 2,200 years ago. So for those reasons, I agree that the king of verse 36 is not Antiochus. But we might ask, why does this vision jump seamlessly from Antiochus to the final Antichrist. Well, remember, Daniel has told us there is a conceptual connection between Antiochus IV and the Antichrist. The end of chapter 7, we're told that human history ends with the emergence of a wicked leader, the culmination of the evil of Rome, who is called the Little Horn. And then in chapter 8, we're told that the end of the Greek Empire is another evil leader, also called the Little Horn. These two little horns are not the same. They emerge from different empires at different times, but they are described by this same phrase because these two people are so alike. And so in chapter 11, Daniel first sees the little horn of chapter 8, the culmination of the evil of Greece, Antiochus. And now the vision subtly shifts to depict the other little horn, the greater and more wicked figure, the little horn of chapter 7, the culmination of Rome and of all human evil, the Antichrist. And if this is right, then the final verses of this chapter describe events which will take place in the future. First, we get a description of the Antichrist beginning in verse 36. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done, 
He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. We learn here five things about the Antichrist. First, he is arrogant. He exalts himself above every religion and everything that is called God. Second, he is a blasphemer. He speaks shocking words and does shocking things against the living God. Third, the Antichrist has a complicated personal religious devotion. Now, this is totally unlike Antiochus. This is one of the main reasons we know this is not talking about Antiochus. Antiochus was devoted to the Greek idol Zeus, who was not unknown to his ancestors. But the future Antichrist will be religiously unique. Daniel says he will not worship the gods of his fathers or the god favored by women, probably a reference to one of the gods worshipped in Daniel's day. And the idea is this, I think. This man will not be devoted to the familiar religions of his time. Instead, he will magnify himself above all of them. He will claim to be God, which is exactly what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.4. And yet, we're also told that Antichrist will worship the God of fortresses. Now, some commentators say this is a figure of speech, meaning he's just addicted to military might. But verses 38 and 39 indicate that Antichrist is in league with something greater than himself. A foreign god whom his fathers did not know, who gives him victory over his enemies. What's this describing? Probably his connection to Satan. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Revelation 13.2 says, To the Antichrist, the dragon, Satan, gave his power and throne and great authority. Antichrist will demand worship but he will also cause people to worship Satan. Revelation 13 says the whole earth worshiped the beast, the Antichrist. But it also says they will worship the dragon, Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast. I would suggest that the relationship of Antichrist to Satan will mock the relationship of Christ to the Father. Antichrist will both personally receive worship and he will direct worship to the evil one. All right, the fourth thing we learn about Antichrist here is he will enrich and empower his followers. We see that explicitly in the text. But the fifth thing, and this is good news, is the Antichrist's power is limited. Verse 37 says, He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. This Hebrew word is almost always used to describe the wrath of God. And so what this tells us is the period of Antichrist's rule is a period in which God is pouring out his wrath on the earth. But when God's wrathful purposes are completed, Antichrist's reign will end. And so this tells us something critical, friends. God is still sovereign even when Satan is being worshipped openly on the earth and when Satan's man has great power. What is decreed shall be done, verse 36 says. As human power reaches its natural and wicked conclusion, as the lawlessness of this world gives rise to the man of lawlessness, the Lord still reigns. And all that happens is exactly what God has decreed. And so once more, I urge you not to put your hope in politics because this is where it leads to the rise of Antichrist. 
Instead, fix your mind and your hope on Christ because His good purposes for this world shall stand. Now, the final verses of chapter 11 depict one final war involving a king of the north. But this time, the king of the north is not a Seleucid king from the past. He is the Antichrist. Verse 40. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Now this campaign described here, again, does not resemble anything from the life of Antiochus. So again, there's good reason to believe this points to a future campaign involving Antichrist. And what these verses tell us is that in the end, Antichrist will not have total power over the earth. There will be nations that oppose him, which war with him. Once more, the king of the north is opposed by the king of the south, which still appears to be Egypt. Apparently, Egypt will attack Antichrist somewhere north of Israel, but they will lose. And the Antichrist will counterattack them. His armies will move southward going through Israel. He will destroy several nations, perhaps Egypt's allies, but others will be spared. Apparently, whatever nations then stand in the geographical footprint, which in ancient times was occupied by Ammon, Edom, and Moab. Today, that would be the kingdom of Jordan, but who knows what it will be when this prophecy is fulfilled. Antichrist will defeat Egypt. Other nations will align themselves with him. Libya and Cush, which occupied the area which is today Sudan and Ethiopia. But after defeating Egypt, Antichrist will hear alarming news from the north and the east. Now, some commentators think this is related to the prophecy of Revelation 9. That a massive army will come from the east across the Euphrates River into the Middle East. And so perhaps to to anticipate conflict with this army, Antichrist will move his forces into the Promised Land, and to facilitate this battle, he will set up his headquarters in Israel. Now, based on prophecies in Zechariah 14 and Ezekiel 38 and 39, it seems that at this point, Antichrist will attack Jerusalem, but there he will meet his end. And all of this seems to anticipate the battle described in Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19, the battle of Armageddon, in which in the midst of an earthly battle, heaven opens and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, he is in a, clothed in a robe dipped with blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The beast, the Antichrist, was captured and was thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from his mouth. Antichrist and all the forces of the rebellious nations will be brought to an immediate doom. And this is the end of human politics. In the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. 
And I would say it is not fit that the people of God become, become obsessed with something where this is its ultimate fate, to be crushed under the feet of Jesus in this way. Jesus will crush human rule and rebellion. But while that's the end of the Antichrist, that's not the end of Daniel's vision. And Daniel now sees four scenes which depict the very end of history. And the first scene is in chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation until that time. Now here we get a big picture view of Antichrist's rule, and we are told it will be a time of horrible trouble, of great tribulation, the New Testament writers said, pulling that language from this passage. Trouble because Satan's man reigns on the earth, and trouble because according to the book of Revelation, during this time God will pour out his wrath on the globe for a period of seven years, if our reading of Daniel chapter 9 was correct. Now, this tells us a really painful truth, friends. Things are going to get a whole lot worse for this world. That's tough to hear in 2020. It's been a bad year. But if you think this is bad, you ain't seen nothing yet, I think this passage tells us. Now, curiously, while this has been a really bad year, there have been a number of voices largely coming from within the American church denying and downplaying how bad this year has been, saying everything's overblown, nothing to see here, things really aren't that bad. But it seems to me that sounds like a lot, a lot like the false prophets referenced in the book of Jeremiah, who said, peace, peace, when there is no peace. It seems odd to me that believers have such difficulty today with the idea that God is moving in judgment when we see the signs around us. Amos 3 says, does distress come to a city and has the Lord not done it? And friends, this shouldn't be foreign to us because this is what the Bible says will happen in the future. In fact, the Bible says a lot worse things than what are happening in our time will happen in the future. Plagues and disasters that kill billions if Revelation is to be taken literally. And so instead of loudly denying what's going on around us, I would suggest a better solution would be for us to allow the events of this year to remember that worse times are coming and to allow that to spur our urgency for evangelism to call our unbelieving friends and loved ones to faith because this world is going to get a lot worse. We learned something else here, though. As the horrors of the tribulation unfold on earth, things also happen behind the scenes. We saw this in chapter 10. That angelic and demonic battles in the unseen world generate consequences on earth, and that's how it will be in the future. At that time, the archangel Michael, who is connected to Daniel's people Israel, will be involved in a significant battle. A battle that ends with the direct intervention of the Lord Jesus as he smites Antichrist and slays the wicked. But while this war ends in mass slaughter, there will be survivors. And that's the second thing we see in chapter 12, verse 1. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Chapter 10 told us of one divine book, the book of truth, which records the flow of history. Here we find another book, a registry of the names of those who will be delivered from this mass slaughter. Now, what is this book? Well, this is probably a reference to what elsewhere is called the book of life, a registry of the names of those who will live with Christ in the new creation forever. Now, in verse 1, it sounds like only believing Israelites have their name in this book, but remember, according to Ephesians 3, that until the time of the apostles, God did not reveal that believing Gentiles would inherit salvation alongside believing Jews. The New Testament clarifies that all believers' names are inscribed in the book of life. Hebrews 12 says that believers are the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. That's us believing, friends. 
And not only are our names in this book, but Revelation 13 and 17 tells us that our names have been there from before the foundation of the world. Believer, God lovingly chose you and destined you for salvation long before you ever heard of Jesus Christ or the gospel, long before you were ever born, long before he spoke this world into being. God has known and loved and chosen you from forever ago. And more than that, Christ promises believers in Revelation 3, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Jesus said in John chapter 6, All that the Father gives to me uh, will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Friends, we are eternally secure if we are in Christ. But in contrast, Revelation 20 tells us that those whose names are not found written in this book will be thrown into the lake of fire. That's what the Bible says about the book of life. And here in Daniel's vision, we see that those who are alive on the earth at the time of the final battle whose names are inscribed in this book, will be spared from the mass slaughter that follows the return of Christ. They will live to see what comes next, what the Apostle John was shown centuries later, the millennial reign of Christ on earth. That was not revealed to Daniel, but that is what the survivors of Armageddon will initially enjoy before the new creation comes. And that future world will not only be inhabited by those who live to see the return of Christ, because the third thing we see in this chapter is that Daniel sees the promise of resurrection. Look at verse 3. Or, sorry, verse 2. He says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting contempt. Now, when Daniel says many, we need to understand he's not saying that only many will be raised, but not all. No, he's saying many will be raised, not few. And we know that because later in the Bible we're told that the sea gave up the dead who were in them, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. All of humanity will rise again in the end. And they will rise for judgment. Some to everlasting life and some to everlasting condemnation. Now the Old Testament doesn't say much about either of these destinies. And some people have tried to use that fact to soften what the New Testament says about the glories of heaven or the horrors of hell. But we need to remember that God progressively gave revelation to the authors of the Bible. The earlier must be interpreted in light of the later. And so we need to know that what the New Testament says is exactly right. Even though the Old Testament doesn't talk much about hell, we can't use that to say, well, hell doesn't exist or hell is not eternal. No. The New Testament must be taken literally on these points. And the New Testament tells us that the lost will be eternally, consciously tormented in the lake of fire. One of the most hor horrific scenes in the whole Bible is found in Revelation 14.11, which says the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. That's real. And people that you and I know are going there. And that should change how we think about our unbelieving friends and loved ones. It should give an urgency and a seriousness to our evangelism. But while that Horrible fate awaits unbelievers. Glory awaits the believer. The righteous will receive resurrection bodies. And that's the fourth thing Daniel sees here in verse 3. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So where's the encouragement in this passage? Here it is, friends. The righteous will be made new. We will receive bodies impervious to sin, sickness, suffering, and death. 
Paul wrote about this in detail in 1 Corinthians 15. That the body we have now is perishable, but it will be raised imperishable. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man from heaven. Right now we have bodies that reflect the fall of Adam. Weak and susceptible to temptation and suffering and death. But believing, friends, the time is coming when we will be raised after the pattern of the risen Jesus. And Daniel says part of that change is we will be made glorious. We will shine like the stars above. Jesus said in Matthew 13, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And the angel says this is the fate of those who are wise. And this term is used throughout chapters 11 and 12 to speak of those who know God and who fear his word. This is the fate of believers. And this is especially true, the angel says, of those who turn others to righteousness. They might hear that and think, oh, okay, that's talking about Christian leaders. No, this should describe every Christian believer because every believer has been charged by Jesus with going and making disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Friends, if you have trusted Christ, someday you will be remade in this glorious way and you will live in a new and glorious world full of unending joy and bliss where Revelation 21 says the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. A world where Paul says, God will be all in all. So believing, friends, this is where it's headed. It's going to get better for us. Yes, this world will get worse and worse, but believing, friends, we will enjoy increasing glory for all eternity. And that is encouraging news for us, is it not? So I would say hold on to this certain hope. God will rescue his people. God will destroy evil. He will remake us and we will live forever in his wonderful presence with all the believers from history. Friends, that is God's guarantee and God is no liar. And in hard times we need to remember this hope and we need to cherish this hope and reflect on this hope. And as we do, our minds will be renewed and our lives will be purified. 1 John 3 says, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. All right, it's been a pretty difficult vision. We come now to the end of it, on our final point, which is that God has sealed some aspects of the future from our current understanding. The angel says in verse 4, But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, but knowledge shall increase. The time of the end will be a time when people will desperately seek knowledge. The Apostle Paul describes this, doesn't he? He says there will be a time when people are always learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Sounds like our day, doesn't it? And that's how things will continue to be until the end. But Daniel is told to ensure that his book, including this vision, is preserved for the future so that in that day God's people can access the reliable information that God has given Daniel and they can draw strength from it. Now the vision ends and we pick up where Daniel was back at the beginning of chapter 10 standing by the Tigris River before an angel. Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on the bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And the angel who gave this message is floating above the river, while two other angels stand below him. Verse 6, And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Now, this term wonders is related to the word found in chapter 11, verse 36 that describes the astonishing blasphemies of the Antichrist. So it seems the, the angel wants to know how long is the Antichrist going to be empowered to do evil things. 
And the first angel responds, verse 7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand towards heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. All right, so the angel in the air takes an oath. The Antichrist will reign for three and a half periods of time. Now this is not the first time we've been told this information. In chapter 7 we read of Antichrist that he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. It's the same thing as here. The people of God will be worn out. Their people will be shattered, the angel says here, by Antichrist. But Antichrist's time is limited. It will end after three and a half periods of time, probably years. Now, why does the angel take an oath to this effect? Why, is, why does he swear this? Well, we'll see that in just a second. But first, Daniel speaks. Verse 8. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Earlier in this book, when Daniel saw complex visions, he would ask a nearby angel to interpret what he had seen. And Daniel tries that here. But, verse 9, he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. The answer is basically, Daniel, this is not your business. Because this vision's not for Daniel. It's not even for his original readers, really. It's for a future generation. The generation who will live to see the fulfillment of this prophecy. And that's why the angel took this oath. So that when that generation is alive on the earth, and when they're suffering, and they say, How long, O Lord? They can look at this and see, here's an angel who took a solemn oath before God that it would last for three and a half periods of time. But about such mysteries, Daniel is not to pry. The, Daniel, the angel does, though, give Daniel this summary of what, uh, what he's seen in verse 10. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. Time of purification is coming, but it will be a time of persecution. And God's people at the end shall gain insight into Daniel's prophecy, and it will sustain them in hard times. But there will be many wicked people who will be blind to the truth and who will follow the evil one. Verse 11. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. And the angel gives one more piece of information. And this is very cryptic. He identifies two periods of time. One which begins with the desecration of the temple and lasts for roughly three years and seven months. And another period of time which runs 45 days longer than that. To what do these periods of time refer? Well, there are a lot of theories. But the truth is, we can't know. The meaning of these verses remains sealed to us today. These dates don't correspond to anything in the past that we know about Antiochus. This seems to point to something in the future related to the Antichrist. But beyond that, we cannot know with specificity what the three years and seven months refer to or the extra 45 days. All we know is the angel says, whoever lives till the 1335 days is blessed. And this sounds a lot like what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Evil times are coming. The godly must persevere to the end. But beyond that, we cannot say with any certainty what this is talking about. You might say, well, that frustrates me. But if that's you, you find yourself in the position that Daniel was in when he received this prophecy. 
When Daniel received this vision, he would have been confused about everything we've talked about this morning. Maybe you're confused about everything we talked about this morning, but he really would have been confused about everything we talked about this morning. Because from his vantage point, it was all future. Not just the last battle and the resurrection, but Antiochus and the Ptolemies and the Seleucids and Alexander and the fall of Persia. All of that would have been a mystery to him. Just like these final verses are to us. Because these verses aren't for us. They're for those who live to see them at the end. To see them fulfilled. And they will understand what these numbers mean. Now, often believers are not content with the fact that some prophecies contain content that we can't fully understand. Sometimes believers long to look into what God has concealed. But we should remember the words of Isaac Newton, who wrote that God gave the prophecies of the Old Testament not to gratify men's curiosities by enabling them to foreknow things, but that after they were fulfilled, they might be interpreted by the event and God's own providence, not the interpreters, be manifested to the world. See, prophecy is not a fun place to theorize and interpret current events and try to look smart. Prophecy is about God giving comfort and clarity to those who live to see the day of its fulfillment and demonstrating that God has indeed declared the beginning from the end and that God is sovereign over history. So friends, we cannot know everything in biblical prophecy with certainty. We should try to understand what's written as best as we can, and I've tried to do that this morning. But we must recognize we can't understand everything, and our theories may be wrong. And we must be content with that, as Daniel was. But, thankfully, God has told us some things with certainty. Things we must know. And that's where the angel leaves Daniel. And where this book ends. With an encouragement based on a clear truth. Verse 13. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest, and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Daniel's urge to keep living a life of faithful obedience because soon his life will end. He will sleep in the dust. But he is to draw consolation knowing that in the end his place is secure. He will stand on the earth in the end, raised from the dead, shining like the stars. And friend, today, if you know Christ, that is true of you as well. This the truth of the resurrection is not obscure. It is clear. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Daniel is to live a life of faithful obedience, awaiting the resurrection, and that's what we are to do too. Paul said this at the end of his teaching on resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, in view of all he said about resurrection, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So believing friends today, let us be busy about the work of the Lord. Let us draw consolation from the certainty that your future is secure in Jesus' hands, that someday you will have a resurrection body and you will live in the new creation. But today, if you have never come to Christ, then be warned. The wrath of God is real. It is coming. Hell is real. And so I would counsel you to turn from your sin and throw yourself on the mercy of Christ and live. That was the book of Daniel. It's a book that has some familiar stories and some difficult prophecies. A book that teaches us this world's not our home. And we're exiles here. Our true citizenship is in heaven. Our true king is Jesus, and we please him when we live a life of faithful obedience. A book that teaches us that God reigns over history, and that things will get a lot worse for this world, but for believers they will get a lot better. 
May we remember what we've learned through this book and may we clutch these truths tightly in these difficult days in which we live.